Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. back in our Habakkuk series, chapter two. Um, If you do not have a Bible or just simply cannot find Habakkuk, it's okay. Uh, We will have that on the screen behind me. If you want to turn there, you can begin doing that now. Uh, I want you to know as we turn to Habakkuk chapter two that this is considered by some to be one of the most important chapters in all of the Old Testament. So this kind of obscure prophet and right in the middle of his his book is a, a really important chapter, not only for Uh, the time, but also for us today. We left off last week with Habakkuk learning that God is sending the Chaldean army, this violent, massive, wicked army, to basically overthrow the nation of Judah and to drive out God's people. And it has brought Habakkuk to this basic problem, which is the basic problem of the entire book of Habakkuk. And it's this. How can God raise up an army of people more wicked than his own people and discipline his people through them. Like, when we think about justice, that doesn't fit in our box of justice. It defies our sense of justice, and yet God says, this is what I am doing. And so Habakkuk pushes back. He says, God, this doesn't seem right. He he brings a second complaint, and then we see this in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will uh, take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Last week, we talked about three principles to remember to cling to in the face of injustice. And these were attributes of God. And the reason we start there is because what we think of God and how we view God drives everything that we do, say, and believe. And one of the challenges that we have in the midst of evil and corruption and injustice is it can begin to distort or taint our view of God. We'll begin to think things like, well, if God were really a God of justice, then, or if God really cared about me, he wouldn't. And so Habakkuk begins with, no, 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 remember who God is. Remember the kind of God he is like. This week, we're going to look at three of the most profound verses in all of the Old Testament, all right here in Habakkuk 2. And then we're going to turn our attention a little bit more so this week on how we respond to the evils and injustices that exist in our world. I want to make a quick side note because this doesn't really jump out of the text, but this is certainly true. If justice is ever within your power, pursue justice. Like, if there is anything you can do to advance the cause of justice, do it. What you're going to hear today is not a call to stick your head in the sand, to throw up your arms, to be fatalistic, to go, well, it just is what it is. It's a broken world. No, whatever we can do to promote, to advocate, to implement justice as people of God, we do that. This is one of the dilemmas that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had during the civil rights movement. We think of the civil rights movement in in the mid-60s, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65. The movement had a ton of steam, but you need to know that before those things were happening in the 40s and 50s, it was challenging for the leaders of the civil rights movement because many, not only in the white community, but even some in the black community went, hey, just bide our time. Eventually it'll happen for us. And Dr. King had the sense to know the time is now. If justice is within our reach, we must go after justice. However, 
we also know that in spite of our best efforts to bring justice to bear on the world, we do live in a fallen world and there are some things in our world that will not be made right until Christ returns. In fact, Christian history is filled with men and women who have found ways to flourish in the face of insurmountable injustice. In places like Cambodia's killing fields and Rwanda's ethnic genocide, Germany's Holocaust and America's slavery era, we have models and examples of men and women who thrived in the face of injustice. In fact, you know that our own faith, the church, was birthed in and thrived through the persecution of the Roman Empire in the first several centuries of its existence. And so we don't throw up our hands and go, you know, there's nothing I can do, but we also don't just kind of implode and go, well, there's too much evil and injustice in the world. It's possible to thrive in the midst of it. And so while we relentlessly pray for and seek justice here and now, we must also have a faith that sustains us through the injustices and evils that we face on this side of heaven. We have to have a faith that can sustain us in the in-between. So unfortunately, Habakkuk is not a book about justice. I wish it was. It's a book about injustice. Habakkuk would not see made right the things he longed to see made right. But what Habakkuk does when the world is beginning to spin out of control around him is he turns to God and God responds. This is God's answer to Habakkuk in chapter two, verses two through 20. I'll read from my Bible. You can follow on the screen behind me. And the Lord answered Habakkuk, write this vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And here God is turning Habakkuk's attention to the Chaldean army. He's puffed up. He's not upright. And yet the righteous will live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own peoples. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, and for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake will make you tremble? And then you will be spoiled for them, because you've plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your own life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, the beam from the, wooden, uh, the woodwork will respond. Woe to him who builds towns with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts and that have terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? 
Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all in it. And here's the conclusion, last verse. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is where we begin. God's gonna begin with a confirmation of what is coming on the people of Judah and then also on the Chaldeans. And I think there's a reason that God starts there and and this is the reason. I, I don't know why God does this in part because I am not he, (laughs) but there is a principle that runs through scripture and our own experience that God makes promises and then there's often a significant gap in time before the promise is fulfilled. Not the way we would want it, right? We go, God, if you told me something's going to happen, I'd like to happen quickly, right? Like we're used to, you know, fast speed, you know, internet and and drive through and, and everything quick and easy. And God says, no, 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 promise, patience, fulfillment. We see it in the story of Abraham and Sarah who in their old age were told they would conceive a son and then waited 25 years until the birth of Isaac. We see it with the Israelites who were led out of Egypt. Remember the the parting of the Red Sea, Prince of Egypt and Ten Commandments, right? Like they're they're marching through, it's, it's all good and then they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Or David who as a young boy is anointed to be the next king of Israel and then waits at least 15 years until the age of 30 to become the king. And during that time, by the way, he's running for his life, he's hiding in caves. Promise, patience, fulfillment. And we are tempted as the people of God sometimes to fill the space between promise and fulfillment with doubt rather than faith. This is what very early after Christ had come to earth, this is what people began to do, questioning whether he would return. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Know this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing or mockery, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Translation, they're saying, what has always been will always be. It was like this yesterday, it was like this last week, it was like this last year, nothing has changed, nothing will change, and in that environment, Peter reminds us, and God reminds Habakkuk, it will surely come, it will not delay forever. Verse four, God turns Habakkuk's attention with a word in Hebrew, hine, the word we have is behold or look. He says, I want you to see something, Habakkuk, just in case you think this isn't coming, Look over here. This is like when my children ask to go for a bike ride and I say, you can't do that because it's about to rain. And my kids go, no, it's not. (laughs) Right? It's not raining. And I say, yes, it is. (laughs) It's about to. Because those gray clouds, though they're not producing rain now, they're going to come this way and within five minutes, you're going to be drenched. So no bike ride. God says to Habakkuk, look. There's some gray clouds coming. And those gray clouds is the powerful and violent and massive Chaldean army. This is going to happen. It's not happened yet, Habakkuk. It's not happened yet, people of God. But it is coming. They are puffed up. They are not upright. And they're coming for God's people. Remember the basic problem that Habakkuk grapples with and that we have to grapple with. How can God discipline his own people by raising up a people more wicked than they. 
Well, unfortunately, God isn't going to give us or Habakkuk the answer to that. What he's going to do is going to give us another question that we have to grapple with. It becomes the fundamental issue, and it is this. How do we as believers thrive in a world gone crazy? See, if I can't get all the answers for why God is doing what he's doing, or in some cases not doing what I want him to do, then the question becomes, how do I thrive in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the injustice? I want to give you three practices from Habakkuk chapter two. Number one is this, we walk by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, again, God says the righteous will live by faith. And this promise comes right as the people of God are on the cusp of utter destruction and disaster. Do you know why? Because one thing we are tempted not to do when the world starts going crazy is to simply walk by faith in God. We tend to panic. We tend to run. We tend to become afraid, overwhelmed, consumed. And God says, no, 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 the righteous ones, You'll know them by the way they live. They live by faith. I would rather have a soul at peace in a world of chaos than a soul at chaos in a world of peace. Right? I cannot control what's going on around me. To some level, I can bring my influence to bear. I can seek justice. But at the end of the day, I am not God. And so I will not be consumed by what's going on around me. Rather, I'll turn my attention to my own soul And the people that God has given me to shepherd. And I'll say, God, how can I make this right? How can I live by faith? And how can we as a people walk in faith? Let me give us a word of caution. And I say us because I'm including myself in this. Be careful not to fan the flames of fear in your life right now. Okay? Because you have ample opportunity to do just that. And just about every news channel and just about every article and every post coming out these days is going to stoke the flames of fear. And whether it's on the right side or the left side or this side or that side, if you get into it too deeply, you'll become consumed by it. And sometimes you need to go, I've got the information I need. I'm turning it off because this isn't promoting faith. It's promoting fear. And again, this is not stick your head in the sand. This is not throw your hands in the air. I'm not saying be misinformed or disinformed, but I'm saying walk by faith. Faith is not eternal optimism. God is not painting an optimistic future for Habakkuk. It's a very realistic future. It's it's in fact, maybe a pessimistic future. Habakkuk, believe it or not, the worst is gonna come and yet you can live by faith within that. Faith is not the belief that everything will go the way I want it. Faith is the belief that God is in control and he will ultimately triumph over evil and injustice. Recall again the words of Dr. King, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. People of faith lay hold of that truth. Interestingly, and you should know that Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, this very verse we're talking about would become the anchor verse for two of the most important and influential theologians in all of Christian history. The first being Paul, right? No argument there. Massively influential. Wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And of all places, when Paul goes to write a letter to the church in Rome, like the center, the epicenter of the Roman Empire, he writes this letter and he pulls from Habakkuk chapter 2. And this is what he says, Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, say it with me, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's saying what Habakkuk said all the way back here in the seventh century when the Chaldeans were coming, this is all the more true today. Those who are righteous will live by faith. In other words, it's not God putting their deeds on a scale and seeing who's good and who's bad. They will access the righteousness of God simply by faith in Jesus. Well, there was a professor in Germany in the 16th century who also became an extremely influential theologian. And as he was seeing what the church was doing in the world at that time, things like twisting the scriptures, even to the point, and this became the final straw, even to the point where someone came into this professor's hometown and started preaching indulgences. Saying to the poor people of Germany, when you give money to the church, God releases the souls of your loved ones to heaven. In fact, the way they said it is when a uh, coin hits the bottom of the coffer, a soul rises from purgatory. And Luther was struggling with this. This wasn't an overnight thing. He's grappling, going, this, isn't, this is not right. This isn't true. This isn't the word of God. And he comes across these verses, Romans 1, 16 and 17. He comes across the words, the righteous will live by faith, and the light bulb comes on. R.C. Sproul calls it Luther's moment of awakening. And so the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg, and so the Protestant Reformation, and so the last several hundred years of church expansion because somebody said, you know what? This obscure passage in Habakkuk chapter two, this is the anchor for our faith. I think the world could use another moment of awakening right now, couldn't it? (laughs) We have, if I can be honest with you for a second, we have existential threats to both our health and our freedom. Coming. We, we have natural disasters swirling around us. I don't know, but they seem to be coming with greater frequency and ferocity. Not just here, but around the world. We see increasing instability both here in America and in the nations of the world. Things feel like they're going chaotic, and so what do we do? This is what we do. We walk by faith. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5-7, by faith and not by sight. You can look around You can become consumed, obsessed with what you're seeing, or you can choose to say there is a greater truth and a greater reality above it all, and I will walk by faith. Look with me at verse 14 of Habakkuk 2. God says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I'm going to leave this up here for just a minute because there's an interesting analogy that God is going to paint for Habakkuk. Do you notice anything weird about this analogy? filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The obvious thing for me is the waters are the sea. <laughs> like that, that, that's the same thing. You can't separate the water from the ocean. The water is the ocean. And I think perhaps that's the point. God is saying if you could separate the water from the ocean, you could separate the glory of God from creation. You cannot do it. It is embedded. It is baked in. Paul, again in Romans chapter 1, and, and by the way, we don't have time to get into this, but I would encourage you this week, if you have a desire to do so, open Romans 1 and Habakkuk 2 and compare them. Striking similarities. Never had seen that before this week. Striking similarities. Paul continues in Romans 1. He says this, Romans 1, 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. The earth is filled with the glory of of the Lord. Like it should be enough just the first sunrise that a person sees. The first rainstorm, the first time squirrels are playing in the backyard to go, man, there's something bigger than me, something beyond me, and it points us to the glory of God so that we're without excuse. And it is not just that inanimate creation manifests the glory of God. I think the point is that the earth will be filled with people who manifest God's glory. This is what God desired from the beginning, although for many centuries the Jewish people thought this is God's plan for us, there were indications from the beginning that God's desire was bigger than just one nation. Look at Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the people of Israel. So from the very beginning, God's going, yes, Israel, I will use you, but the plan is bigger than you. The plan is that my glory would resound from Israel to the world and that all nations, tribes, and languages would become acquainted with the goodness and the glory of God through you. Peter would pick up some of these same words in in, uh, 1 Peter kingdom and priests and holy nation, he'd say, this is fulfilled in you, church. You are the the, the manifold witness of God's goodness and his glory in creation. And so the second practice in the face of injustice is this, we witness to the world. We don't shout them down. We, We don't rage against the machine. Like we witness to the world of God's goodness. Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, hey, wait in Jerusalem. He says, and you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God wants his glory resounding from people around the world. Earlier this week, I had lunch with a young man named Alex who is grappling with faith questions, raised in a Christian home, reading a lot, incredibly bright kid, trying to figure out what he believes. And as we were talking, I was reminded of something that I know to be true, but it just resonated in our conversation. It is this. Faith and knowledge of God is not just informational. It's experiential. I found myself telling this guy about 20 years younger than me, Look, there's reasons for us to believe, and we talked about some of the the logic and the philosophy and creation and and all the different things, and that's important. But eventually I said to him, I I just got to tell you, one of the reasons that I believe in God is because I now have history of knowing him and experiencing him. I've seen him walk me out of addiction and addictive habits and patterns. I've, I've seen him fill my life with goodness and, and kindness. I, I've seen him bless me with a family that I didn't deserve. I've seen him put in my care people who love and support. And, and, and I've got models of the kind of men that I want to aspire to be. And all of this tells me that God exists and that he's good and that his glory resounds throughout the world. This is what changed for me in high school. I had a ton of information about God, but almost no experience with him. 
And I learned that God wants more than just our information about him. He wants a relationship with us. I want to cast a vision for you for what it could look like for God's glory to abound in West Orange County. For God's glory to abound from Horizon West Church to Mosaic to Life Church to Harvest to the Grove and every other church in our community. But not just from the churches, but from our neighborhoods like Summerport, Independence, Summer Lake, Oxford Chase, Oakland Park, Kings Point, Tildenville, the glory of God resounding from our neighborhoods. And not only there, but from our high schools, our middle schools, our elementary schools, theme parks, restaurants, law firms, retail centers, that the knowledge of the glory of God would resound. And how does that happen? It happens when people reach people. It happens when we take seriously God's call to go into our part of the world and be witnesses for him. I'm going to go to one last verse with you. This is the last verse in the chapter of Habakkuk 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now this, this verse comes on the heels of God speaking about idols. He basically is saying, how insane is it that somebody would build an idol and then worship it like it's God? Like they're the one who made it. And the implication is this, but you didn't make me. I'm not mute. I'm not impotent. I'm not like them. The Lord is in his holy temple. Where is God in the face of injustice? He's on his throne. He's on his throne. He's reigning over it all. The psalmist in chapter two, I believe it is David, uh, makes a reference to this very fact with people raging against God. He says this, Psalms two, one through six. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Let us remember in the face of evil, in the face of injustice, in the midst of a world gone crazy, that God is reigning above it all. And so we do this, third practice. We worship with reverence. We worship with reverence. Most common uh, word for worship in the Old Testament is the idea of to bow down. It's essentially this idea that we recognize the, the, the greatness and the superiority of another being. And, and Psalms, the, the, the verses we just read from a moment ago, is the primary book in all of Scripture that deals with worship. Interestingly enough, the word Psalms means song. So, so that's why a lot of times we think about music as worship, but they are not one and the same. Worship is much more than simply singing and making music. Listen to what David said again in Psalm 62, verse 1. I'm going to actually read this uh, from my own Bible here. Psalm 62, 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence, for from him comes my salvation. Now David was a musician. David called for the people of God to shout and to play trumpets and tambourines and to dance and to sing but he said, sometimes worship looks like just being silent and reverent before the Lord. Now, in early times in Christian practice, the spiritual discipline of silence was one of the primary ways that people understood to worship God. And there was a reason for that. 
Have you ever noticed that when we use a lot of words, we can tend to fall into certain traps? See, it's with our words that we correct people and put them in their place. We use words to control narratives and to shape perceptions. We use words to vent and to gloat and to argue and to wound. And ultimately, we use our words to control. And worship is about letting go of control. And just being silent before the one who is always speaking, who is always working, and who is on his throne. And we say, God, in this silent moment, I recognize that I ultimately can't change things. I can't control things, but you are God. You are king on your throne. When is the last time that you were consciously silent before God? In his presence, no words, no noises, no sounds, just simply sitting in silent reverence before God. I've shared with many of you that I've begun to use what's called the Pause app. It's an app that you can download from you know, the App Store, and it, it basically walks you through one, three, five, or ten minute meditations on Scripture and on prayer. And, and this has helped me to kind of slow down and to embrace a, a reverent posture before God. But more recently, when I'm going to my back porch with my cup of coffee, I'm not even taking my phone as much. I'm just enjoying sitting in silence, watching the sun come up. And watching the squirrels play and hearing the wind blow and, and just experiencing God for who he is, sitting in silent worship. I want to remind us one more time of the context in which God calls Habakkuk to be silent. And it is in the face of imminent danger. Because when we face imminent danger, what we're likely to do is say, okay, God, how do I stop this or how do I resist this? Like, what's the weapon that you can give me if the Chaldean army is coming? God says, here's the weapon. Worship me. Worship me. Sit in silent reverence before the God who is in control, the God who reigns over it all. Keep silence before me. So here's how we're going to close this morning. We're going to do what God called Habakkuk to do at the end of Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to sit in silence before the Lord. And for maybe 60 or 90 seconds, I want you simply to quiet your mind as best you can. And maybe it's a refrain like, Lord, you reign above it all. Or maybe it's the verse, we walk by faith, not by sight. Or maybe it's simply visualizing laying down your burdens before the throne of God. But we're going to practice silent and reverential worship. And then after a moment, Justin, Ashley, and the team will lead us in a song of worship.
Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.